Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name is Mike Stacks. Today, I'm going to be talking to Greg Prevost, the lead singer and mastermind behind the Chesterfield Kings, and now a solo recording artist under the name Greg Stackhouse Prevost. The Chesterfield Kings were arguably the most significant and influential group of the 1980s garage revival. In fact, scratch the arguably. Formed in 1978 in Rochester, New York, they were also the first, along with the unclaimed on the West Coast, to take a seriously purist approach to recreating the look, the sound, the feel, the smells of mid-60s American garage punk. In doing so, they inadvertently spawned a new mutation of the form that proliferated around the planet via a pre-digital grassroots network of friends, fans, and fanzines. Greg and I first connected in 1983 and bonded over our shared taste for 60s garage music, blues, psychedelia, and rock and roll, the real stuff, and many other aspects of mid-century culture, TV, movies, and so on. We've been good friends ever since. Greg was the leader of the Chesterfield Kings from their inception until their breakup in 2011, by which time he was bored with the band and worn out by the music business as a whole. He's just written his autobiography, published by Misty Lane Books, On the Street, I Met a Dog. As I wrote in Ugly Things, it's one of the most honest and entertaining rock and roll memoirs you'll ever read. The book is more than just a definitive history of the Chesterfield Kings. It tells the larger story of Greg's life from his birth in 1955 until the present day. A life that spans the entire rock and roll era. All of it lived in the city of Rochester. We had a lot of laughs talking about it. Hope you enjoy our conversation. So, all right, I'm here with Greg Prevost, and Greg has just published his autobiography. It's called On the Street, I Met a Dog, an autobiography and the definitive story of the Chesterfield Kings. Um, now, Greg, what I like about this book is that it's not really just a book about the Chesterfield Kings. It really tells a larger story of your life, you know, right up from your birth in 1955 until the present day. And uh, all of that has kind of been lived in the city of Rochester, New York. So. For the people at home that maybe uh, don't know where Rochester, New York is, or don't have an atlas handy, maybe you could kind of tell us a little bit about Rochester, where it is, what kind of town it is, and what it was like growing up there in the 50s and 60s. It's sort of a, um, it's a middle-sized city. It's about an hour from Syracuse. 
people probably don't know where the hell that is, but uh, it's about an hour from the Canadian border, Niagara Falls, and about six or seven hours from New York City, uh, you know, up toward the Canadian border. And it's um, kind of industrial, semi-industrial. Kodak Park used to be a big thing, you know, Kodak film and all stuff, but they fizzled out over the years, you know. And now it's just kind of like, um, it's it's not bad, you know, very uh, suburban sort of, you know, depending on where you are. I mean, I like growing up here. It was okay, you know. Yeah, it can't, I guess it can't be bad if you're still there. <laughs> or you're with a left, right? Right. I mean, I've, I've spent other places where I thought, well, this would be a nice place to go, like New Mexico, but then they have like these big tarantulas and scorpions and all this kind of shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no tarantulas in Rochester. Huh? No, just spiders, you know, but nothing big. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, uh, you know, tell me about growing up. I mean, in your book, you make it sound almost like a kind of a leave it to beaver kind of childhood in some ways, you know? Um, yeah, actually, it was sort of like that, you know, and then my parents were real strict because I went to Catholic schools and, you know, all that kind of crap. But um, beyond that, I just kind of, my parents didn't like, you know, they didn't, didn't watch me or anything. I just did whatever I wanted and you know, I'd go on, there's a railroad track right near our house and I would just hop on the train and go to my cousin's house every day in the summertime. It was kind of fun, you know, but uh, that, nowadays they can't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had a, had a lot of freedom, even though I didn't, you know? Uh, yeah, you probably had more freedom than you realized at the time, you know? Yeah, it's because, you know, you could you could do what you want. You know, I'd get up, when I was old enough to have a bike when I was like five or six, then you'd just take off. My mother didn't know where I was and didn't give a shit, you know? I mean, she did, but, you know, not like now where everybody's like, oh, we're, you know, what the, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, we don't let our kids like be, you know, hobos riding the rails and stuff. <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> we don't do that anymore. I don't think it's any it's not any different. I think that the internet just kind of exposed all the, you know, really fucked up stuff that's out there, but back then it was there, but we just, you know, nobody I mean it wasn't as extreme. It's more extreme now, you know. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a lot more fear. So I guess, you know, what we should talk about is when rock and roll kind of began to affect your life, because that was obviously the force that directed the entire course of your life. So how did that start uh, impacting you? When and how? Like, when I was too young to realize what songs were, you know, who did songs and stuff, you know, like Jimmy Rogers and stuff like that would come on the radio. And it was, I mean, it's lame in today's, you know, the way you look back at it, it's a lame kind of music, but... Back then, it was kind of hip. And then uh, I just got into, like, Jan and Dean and stuff accidentally. Like, the first record I actually liked enough to buy it was, <laughs> I know you're going to laugh, Four Seasons, uh, Sherry. Yeah, no, that's a great record. You know, and then after that, I just kind of, then the Stones and all that kind of stuff happened. And, the, you know, that just kind of picked it up. Yeah, that's what, something I want to talk about because you wrote about that very eloquently in your book. was like, you know, you saw, like, every kid of you know during that era you saw the beatles on ed sullivan oh shit the fucking phone's ringing hang on a second hold on a sec sorry about this so that was mine for a second <laughs> no it's my lawyer hang on one second hello um can i get back to you because i i'm on i'm doing an interview thing right now and bye bye sorry about that when you said it was your lawyer, I thought they were going to stop your recording. <laughs> Don't do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we will edit that out. <laughs> Greg takes a call from his lawyer. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about um, the first time you saw the Stones on TV, because you write about that, you know, very eloquently in the book about 
like you know, like most kids your era, you know, you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and that had an impact. But for you, even more momentously, it was seeing the Rolling Stones on Hollywood Palace. So, uh, can you tell us what was what was it about that that had such an effect on you? Um, I should point out my my cousin was four years older than me, and he was like my best friend at the time, and um, he was totally tuned into like all this stuff before it happened, like the Beatles. And so we watched them, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, this is, well, it was different, you know, because, I mean, I actually liked Hootenanny and that kind of stuff. I liked that kind of folk stuff, you know, and then it kind of disappeared when the Beatles came out, all that. And then, um, then he was like saying, we wait to see these guys they are supposed to be really good. And there was, we just seen pictures of them. And after we saw them, they were like, you know, it's just the whole look and, you know, and it was kind of like, I didn't get along with anybody in school or teachers or nothing. So it was kind of like, yeah, they look like what I want to look like, you know, whatever. I mean, I never thought about it before, but they came on the show and our parents and my uncle thought they were a bunch of shit. And we were like, oh, yeah, this is fucking, this is it, you know? And from there, it was just kind of like, it escalated, you know, for me. And then I got in trouble because of it and all this other kind of crap. But it was the where it was what was needed for me at the time. Right. It was an attitude and a, and a sound and, and a whole package really yeah it was like a revelation you know i was like wow this is i mean at that point i was just some dumb you know 10 year old kid like like you know just some fuck up kid and you know like thinking well what am i gonna do because i didn't like school and i didn't like really anything well you know authoritative stuff you know right and uh no that worked that was the key to the the door you know right so how did that change you i mean um that's when you started really collecting records and magazines and, 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 you know, just really absorbing everything that was happening. Right. Yeah. And it was kind of like, I, I got really obsessed with the stones and trying to have every single and picture sleeve and magazine with their picture in it and all that stuff. And then I discovered the pretty things and all these other bands that, well, actually the kinks first and, uh, all that kind of stuff just started happening. And it was like, I don't know, all of a sudden it's like overwhelming, you know, and so many great bands and such a good, era i mean it was it was a great time for me but at the same time i hated school and i didn't like having to have short hair and all that stuff but that was part of the time you know yeah right and there were actually you know garage bands in rochester that you were able to see when you were a kid right yeah it was i was lucky to have this radio station wsay and they played um the opposite of what the other channels would play you know like wbbf was great but they'd play top 40 and then like S.A.Y. would play it. Like, I mean, I heard the Sons of Adam on there. It's like, wow, you know, you couldn't find some of these records because they were not in the stores. And some of them you could, like the Magic yeah. Mushrooms. When I heard that, I was like, I went out and bought it at this place called Music Lovers. But anyways, they would play all these obscure kind of, not obscure, let's just say they, sort of, but uh, they weren't mainstream, you know. And they'd play like the local yeah. records, like the We Four and the Herd and all that kind of stuff, you know. And and uh, just was a the timing was good because there was a, a club near my grammar school called the High Tide, and um, the bands would play there like all the time. So you could just walk ten minutes from my house, and you're there. And I don't know it was a it was like a I don't know <laughs> it was a good, a good time. I wish it was still around, you know. And, and you were like what twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old? Yeah, right? at the time, like twelve, thirteen. And, and you could walk into these places because it was like a sort of a teen club or whatever. So if you were twelve or thirteen. You could just go in. It was like a dollar or 50 cents or whatever it was at the time, you know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what 12 and 13-year-olds need today, man. They don't have that anymore. I know. It's sad, you know? 
And and uh, what I thought was really amazing was that you actually uh, saw or or more accurately heard Sun House. Yeah, you know, at a local coffee house in in the sixties. Tell us about that. That was like totally accidental, or just everything just sort of happened by chance, or just because I was in the right place at the right time. And um, it was this coffee house called the Black Candle, which was part of the House of Guitars. And um, it was on Lake Avenue, right next to the High Tide near my grammar school. And uh, I had seen the Stones on something, I can't remember, Ed Sullivan or something. And then there was a a review about it in Rave or one of those things. And Brian Jones was talking. No, it was Shindig. That's the show. Right. And Helen Wolf was on it. And Brian Jones was talking about this guy's son house and how he saw him hanging out on the sidelines. And it was like a really happening thing, you know, and all this stuff. And then just by chance, I was walking by there one day and there was a picture of him taped on the window and said Sun House appearing, you know, next Tuesday, whatever it was. And so then I went and then um, I got there and it was just like this, you know, kind of a dumpy, you know, it was like a coffee house. And um, Bruce Shawbrook, who was my boss later on, <laughs> him and Armand, his brother, they owned it and ran it like with the house of guitars and uh, Sun House is playing. And then Bruce wouldn't, you know, I used to bum around outside the open door. It was during the nicer weather. And um, since I was like 10, he wouldn't let me in. So he let me watch from the doorway. So I was about 15 feet away. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and uh, it was great, you know, but at the time it was just like, I, w- I wish I could remember it. You know what I mean? Like in my head, like a hard drive or something where you could rewind it. But you know how that is. Yeah, right. But it must have, on some level, had quite an impact. And obviously, you're really into that kind of music to this day, you know? Yeah, it was it was pretty effective, you know? I don't know. And then the Stones just kind of turned me on to all that kind of music and then the pretty things. And as you know, we all kind of stepped backwards and looked at what they were listening to, you know? Right, yeah. That was the great thing about that music, was it opened the doors to all this other kind of music and a sort of understanding of how it all fit into a larger larger you know scenario that stretched back before world war ii stretched back over the entire century really pretty amazing yeah you know especially when you're just a teenager taking all that stuff in they weren't teaching you that stuff in school you were learning it you were learning it from the records you know (laughs) and the interviews it was real important you know i I think it really was oh definitely yeah i I think it just the like the stones and the pretty things and the yardbirds just I don't know. They opened the door for a lot of stuff for me and for our generations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, just moving along, obviously, you know, during your teens, and then it's like the late 60s and through the early 70s, you're buying tons of records and you're seeing tons of live shows. And, you know, maybe tell me about some of those. I mean, like Alice Cooper, for example. What was it like seeing Alice early on? Um, I don't know. They were just like... uh I had never seen a band like that. Well, obviously at the time, nobody was doing that kind of stuff. And they had all this kind of junky, like they weren't technically advanced yet, you know? So you just came out with this crappy, like wooden chair with <laughs> really primitive effects, you know, and, um, and the rope and all that stuff. And then one of the times I saw him, he came out with a, a window frame, which I thought was pretty great. It was kind of great. You know, I was like, what, what the fuck? He's got <laughs> like a window. And he's walking around with it, you know, and people were like, throwing shit and stuff you know it's just i don't know it's like people didn't get it yet it was like right before 18 kind of took off and and then after that everybody kind of got it you know or whatever you know they became 
mainstream. Well, I don't want to say mainstream, but yeah, they were. Yeah, I mean the show, the theatrical elements of the show kind of had a budget suddenly, right? Yeah, he's got a guillotine and stuff. I like when they used to come out with like old tires and stuff, you know, just crap they'd find on the street, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit more real. Now that yeah, the Kinks we we mentioned them earlier, and I know that's a band that you know one of your favorites, and you saw them a lot, and you actually ended up you know becoming friends with Ray Davis. Can you you know tell us how did that come about? Um, it was really weird. I, I had seen him like 70, I can't remember year four. It was like right before, um, it was around the time the soap opera album came up. It was the first time I had seen him. And then, um, the school boys tour was coming to Rochester and, uh, it's really bizarre because I had two tickets and I was supposed to go with my friend, Tony, who bailed out on me. So my father ended up going cause I didn't drive yet. And my father hated all this <laughs> shit. You know, he didn't like long hair and hippies and bums and all that kind of stuff that he thought I was. And, um, but he actually went, so, and, and he actually liked it too, which was kind of funny. And at the time I had this flyer, it was like a out of sight, not out of sight. It was future. Um, it was like a newsletter. It was like a page fold over thing. And, and then I told him, I go, uh, I'll be right out. I'm going to go talk to Ray Davies. And, you know, like, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> like if you try to <laughs> I try to do that now, it's like, you got to go through like security. And, and so, um, they're playing at this college Rockport college or whatever. And then I just kind of like barreled into the back area, you know, it was like nobody there. It was like one kid and he's like, and hey, where are the kinks? Are they hanging out in the back? It was, yeah, they're back there in a the locker room. And then I just ran into Dave and um, the other guys, you know, like Mick Avery were just kind of hanging around. It was funny because I know, edit this out if you want. Um, I had the, my sister's preservation act one to get it signed for, right? And and Dave's like, I had never seen this record. He's like, I've never seen this record before. You know, it's like, really? It's a fucking big record. You know, it was, it was out for like years. And then he's looking at it with uh, John Gosling and, and, and they're like going through each person's picture and he's writing their names on it. My sister has this record with all, he wrote every person's name on the back cover who's in that little collage, you know? And, oh, yeah. and it was kind of cool. But um, anyways, he was like astonished by this album cover that had been out for like years and uh <laughs> so then so i go is ray around he goes yeah he's in the back yeah I go in the back you know and and so then I just kept going through bales of like you know these old lockers and it's a locker room then all of a sudden ray's he's standing there he's got his underwear and he's putting his shirt on and all this stuff I'm like oh i'm sorry i'll leave you on he goes that's okay i don't care and then uh i gave him the um the flyer and the not the flyer the um newsletter or whatever and then the next time they came to rochester his manager um said yeah ray wants to see you blah 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 and then i gave him the first two issues of the magazine future and and for some bizarre reason he thought it was the best thing ever i don't know why because it was like this shitty hand-drawn sloppy nasty you know it's really mean kind of stuff you know like <laughs> i mean if you've read the magazine it's all like you know fuck this and this is shit and i didn't like anything and you know but it, but somehow he liked it and he thought it was great i don't know why but he did yeah, well, you used to have these incredible, like, one-line reviews of, like, all the latest kind of <laughs> mainstream stuff, and they were they're hilarious. But there was, I remember you told me that he really loved, you wrote this one for uh, the new Bachman Turner Overdrive <laughs> album. You, could you, do you remember what he said? Oh, uh, yeah, it was like, um, well, I, I, I would go through Billboard magazine, and I'd, I'd just find titles that would be funny, you know, to, if I laughed at them. And Bachman Turner Overdrive, I think it was... I forgot which album it was, the fourth album. And I said, um, Canadian Fatso's put out another piece of crap is what the review was. 
And then he goes, oh, it's my favorite one. And he goes, <laughs> and he, he pointed on the stage, the kinks when they're doing a song check. He goes, Canadian fatsos, there's some British fatsos. <laughs> but somehow he liked it. And I thought, wow, this guy that wrote Waterloo Sunset likes this crude stuff. You know, it was really weird, but he did. It was bizarre. I think he appreciated the irreverence and the humor because I think he, you know, Ray was a bit like that. He didn't, he didn't like anything either, really. He <laughs> probably still doesn't. I know, it, but he was really cool. And then, um, I kind of got to be friends with him and then he um he wanted to do an interview which was great for me. It was like, wow, you want to do an interview? Holy shit, you know. And that was like I was in Buffalo in 1978 and uh it it was really fun, you know. And I don't know, those are the days, but Yeah. Uh, well, we should talk a little bit about uh Future, the fanzine you started. I think the first issue was like 1977 or something like that. Yeah. It started out as a um a, just a fold over, you know, thing uh whatever you call it, the newsletter. And I used to hand them out at the store to like hippies and people that were into like cool music and stuff. Then I just started doing the magazine, which was, well, I don't know if it's a magazine, not like ugly things is a magazine. That's a real magazine. It was kind of shitty, you know, fold over, whatever. And it was all, I used to do it by hand and it was all sloppy and, and it was really like opinionated. And, uh, but I, I was trying to be honest, you know, people thought I was an asshole and stuff, but I didn't care, you know, that that was what was great about fanzines, though it was it was it was like a platform for you to have your own opinion, even if it was obnoxious, you know. Yeah, exactly. And no, there was no edit. I edited it myself, and it's just like, you know, if I didn't like something, I'd say this is crap, and then I would like, you know, hype up things that I thought were great, and it got better as it as I went on, you know, as far as the format or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I remember. I don't remember which issue it was, but I think the first one I picked up was the one with the interview with Ray. Um, and that was actually in a record store here in San Diego oh. called Blue Meanie. So yeah, that was, yeah. And I thought it was great. You know, um, the fanzines back then in the seventies and eighties were a real important part of learning about stuff like Greg Shaw's, you know, bomb magazine who put the bomb, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And fanzines like Gorilla Beat. It was, you know, real important. It's kind of lost now. Yeah. I think that was like, and then it kind of, it united a lot of us, that's how we all got to know each other, really, you know, because, I don't know, Greg Shaw was the, what do you call the, he was the guy that brought us all together into this, like, funnel, and he used to distribute all my stuff and all that, and he helped me a lot, you know, and if it wasn't for him, I probably- Yeah, same with me. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't have gone anywhere. I mean, I would have just, yeah, I don't know, he, he was one of the guys that did it, you know, really. Yeah, he was like, a, you know, the hub of the sort of internet then, when the internet was basically just guys- and and some women, you know, sending fanzines back and forth in the mail, trading tapes and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, you know that was that was the uh, social media, you know, <laughs> and and that's what make the scene happen. You know? <laughs> I, I think it made it more personal, though, too. You know how like now it's just kind of like I think if we did what we were doing now or then now, it just wouldn't have took. It wouldn't be what it was, you know, because you had to make an effort to like send somebody a letter or or make a phone call or whatever, you know, and now it's just kind of like, oh, I'll send somebody a text or an email and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, all these guys recording shitty songs on their computers and, oh, look, I'm a pop star and all this kind of garbage, you know, it, it, it just, you know, <laughs> yeah. they flood, they flood the internet. And then it's like, when somebody good comes out now, it's hard to find them. You know, I would hate to be some young kid trying to like have a band and say, Hey, look what I got. It's like, you know, you got to merge through all this shit that's out there, you know? Yeah, you can find everything, but the problem is you've got to wade through everything to find the good stuff. Mm -hmm. 
unless you're a stat like the loons are established so everybody knows that you know and but then there's like some young bands coming out and they're like well they might be good but good luck you know yeah it's it's, it's tough um let, let's talk about music uh your, your own music you, at some point you started making your own music uh you know this we're talking like the mid to mid to late 70s right when and and you're recording making recordings you know under names like mr electro and the psychedelic lampshade and all that, <laughs> <laughs> and all that stuff is about to be released you know which is uh and it's great i, I love it I, i'd never heard most of these things on this new album that's about to come out called vintage violence um tell us about some of those you know where were they recorded and how and what was your thinking what were your inspirations for for these things um <laughs> uh, i don't want to get too long-winded uh I'll, I'll keep it short uh let's see um well i was going to college i'll be long-winded um <laughs> uh, anyways um i was going to college and i, I was going to be a doctor and all this stuff and you know, and then I started running out of money and all this kind of crap. And I didn't have a car or license because I couldn't afford that and that. And uh, anyways, I was working at the cemetery for a couple of years, you know, like for two years and uh, while I was going to school. And um, then I got into the House of Guitars, um, started working part time, which is was a place I used to go to all the time from the 1964 up to, you know, they're still there. I still go there, you know. Um <laughs> They just they just changed locations about a hundred times, but um, I started working there around 1973, and I started meeting all these people that were into like cool stuff, you know. And it was still early enough in the sequence of years, so there wasn't shitty music yet. I mean, to me, 1975 is kind of the it starts falling off the edge, you know. And um, yeah, once 1978 comes, 79, it turns to shit, you know. Unless you really look for things, but I, I won't get into that. You know that um, it's kind of like the mainstream of music just turned into a bunch of crap. And then as it went on, it got worse. So anyways, in 73, there was just like Molly Hatchet and shit like that, or Marshall Tucker or whatever. And so you had a kind of fine guys that liked things like blue cheer and uh, 13 floor elevators and, you know, can and am on duel and stuff, which is what I was into at the time. And then, um, guys started working at the store and I met this guy, Mike Ferreira who played guitar and he was in a band called Zenith the Fluvium. And, um, anyways, I hooked up with him and, and his drummer, Carl Mack and Jim Faber is a bass player. And then, um, they had their band and they would play. And, um, uh, then I would just show up later on and we'd do my thing. I, I, you know, I called it Mr. Electro. Well, I was called Mr. Electro cause I, I had about 40 Dan Electro guitars and Mike Ferrer just said, Hey, let's call you Mr. Electro. I said, okay, that sounds good. You know, whatever. And anyways, I had all these different variations of groups of names or whatever but it was always the same guys and me and somebody quit and some other guy would join anyways i'm rambling on here and uh <laughs> <laughs> this is good don't worry we're interested <laughs> anyways i was interested in stuff like you know uh, the velvet underground and the stooges and um i love john kale and uh daryl way from curved air and all that stuff and i wanted to play violin and all this kind of stuff so i had a violin and i, I bought it and uh, i had it customized with a telecaster pickup in it you know this guy dick robinson it worked at the store he's the luthier upstairs he installed it anyways so so i have this electric violin that feeds back and it's screaming loud and i don't know how to fucking play it and <laughs> I, I go on books and i'm trying to learn it and all this stuff and uh, i learned a couple things and didn't get anywhere with it but it was one of those things that i just used it off and on with a guitar and then 
in any case, you know, we did this John Cage kind of stuff, and it was just really far out jazz, Sun Ra, all that kind of stuff that we liked. And um, we just play this, we just start playing. I'd have an idea, so this is how it's going to go. And that was like the Mr. Electro and the Void and Mr. Electro and the Lampshade was a little bit more, um, I don't know, musical. I don't want to say musical, but we we did <laughs> we did stuff that was more yeah. more structured and um uh, there was another version of the band where we did stuff like by the pretty things and, and the trogs and we started playing three minute songs instead of 25 minute like freakouts you know um right I don't know, we're kind of like the pretty things and the deviants and all those bands were was what i wanted to be like or what i wanted to i aspired to be like that kind of a thing you know i don't know if it was it probably wasn't it was shitty and noisy and stuff but um Oh, I think it's great. There's a you know, there's a version of LSD uh, on the on the album that's really great. It's like a, it's almost like a sort of funhouse Stooges take on the pretty things. You know, it's really great. Yeah, I think Mike Mike Ferraro was a great guitar player. He was he was a really good guy. He he died years ago. I don't know what happened to him. He he was only like 34 when he died. But um, oh, like a lot of my friends are gone. But um. He was a great guitar player and a good friend for a long time back then. And, uh, you know, he was on the same page, you know. So, but anyways, um, yeah, that was, uh, it was kind of like an ongoing thing where it started out as a John Cage 25, 30 minute, like, you know, rumble songs or whatever you want to call it. And then it kind of got more organized and then it sort of got to more three minute songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which led up to like, um, the distorted levels, which is almost the same guys again, but it got more, I don't know, even that's not really organized. I don't know. You know, <laughs> now, but these were mostly like recording projects, right? You didn't really play live or, or did you? No, we didn't. I wanted to, but then at the point where we got a chance to play in a park, um, the other guys had their Zenith, the Fluvium band, which was their main priority. They had to play somewhere else. So in the meantime, I recorded this stuff. And, but when we recorded these songs, it's usually we had an audience in the basement. We actually, that's what we recorded in this guy, Carl's basement, the drummer. And, um, we just have like about 20 people show up, you know, Carol and her girlfriends and all this shit. And, you know, and okay, why don't you come down? And we kind of just had all these people there while we're recording this noise. And, um, it was kind of fun, but It'd be like people standing in between the orange amps, which were on 10. You probably couldn't hear after you got out of there because it was so loud. <laughs> but yeah, they were just recording <laughs> things. And then, you know, and the only thing that got actually put out back then was the Distorted Levels, which was 78. And um, all the albums, I recorded two albums with the Mr. Electro things, and I couldn't afford to put them out at the time, so I didn't. Hey, t- you know, one of my favorite of the early songs of yours is... Uh rejected at the high school dance <laughs> so you know that's that's a great song and, and there's a great story behind that the inspiration for that can you tell that to us um <laughs> well uh you know it's funny the original version of it is lost somewhere in it and the thing that's on that compilation is just like a guitar demo of me playing a guitar and that stuff and that other thing i did later on it was from like the it was recorded in the late 80s but anyways yeah it was at um I don't know, I was going out with Carol at the time and we were still kind of not knowing each other yet, you know, because it was only a year or two since we'd started going out. And then her girlfriend was in charge of this like lame high school dance thing, you know, at, at a run to quite high school. And, um, so she goes, Oh, you want to go to this? And I'm like, Oh fuck, I don't want to, you know, that kind of stuff was so lame to me. And plus I was too old to go to, I was in my twenties. So <laughs> it was kind of stupid, you know, like some hippie guy going to some dumb high school thing, whatever. 
So anyways, I'd say, okay, I, you know, I, I love Carol. So I, I wanted to see her, you know how it is when you're first going out with somebody, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I'll do anything. Well, not really. I wouldn't do anything, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I would go to some <laughs> stupid dance. So I'd say, okay, what the fuck? I'll go to this. And so then me and Ferreira went, I said, Hey Mike, you want to go? And he goes, oh, are you shitting me? Uh, you know, but so we went and I remember going to, and I was wearing these my mother's sunglasses it was dark out and they were like those pointy ones like they wore in the 50s you know ladies wore them <laughs> and i had like yeah. this andy mckay hairdo it was like kind of before mullets were mullets you know i had this this pompadour thing and his hair down on my back thing going and some dirty suit coat with the elbows ripped out and all this kind of stuff anyways i walked in i fell up the stairs and they're like get this guy out of here you know and um Carol's friend was like in charge and they're, Oh, he's with me and all this stuff. She's embarrassed and it was fucking stupid. Anyways. So we're in there and all this crappy music's playing. And then some, somehow Mike was fighting with my, or with Carol's girlfriend. And then it turned into this like scene and then they threw us out, you know, and we're in a parking <laughs> lot. It was snowing out. We couldn't find the car. We're wearing sunglasses and it's dark out for our head on some wraparound shades. And we're like walking around in the dark and look like morons. And, um, <laughs> It was really fucking stupid. And so <laughs> it snowed about three inches, so we couldn't find his, his car, and we're walking around. And then I had this paper bag in my my pocket from a lunch bag from when I was at work the day before or something. So I, I wrote the words down to I was rejected at the high school dance. And um, the next day I recorded it with the with that band, and um, then the tapes got lost. But anyways, the versions of it came out years <laughs> later. <laughs> There's a great story, and that 1976 demo that's on the album is is just great. You know, like I, I on the liner notes, I, I described it as sounding like something that would Keith Richards, uh, you know, left on a cassette tape during Exile on Main Street sessions or something. <laughs> was, you know? I mean, too, it was just, you're too nice, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love it. It's got such a great kind of vibe to it, and and uh, it kind of is like a distillation of everything that you've done subsequently in a way. You know? <laughs> We'll be right back. Uh, let's talk then about the distorted levels, because um, you mentioned that a couple times, and that was really your first proper, you know, record that was released, you know, and you released that yourself in 78, you know. Um, that's kind of a big deal back then to sort of put out your own 45 and figure out how to do that. So, you know, how did you go about doing it? How did it happen? And, uh, you know, how far did it get distributed? Um what, what this is really another weird thing I have to bring up in between the Mr. Electro stuff and that it was this band called the creatures from the black lagoon. I'll keep it short. Um, it was like this guy, John, his John Fritch who recorded all this stuff for me. He was the engineer on all these early things. And he was a key person that kept me going because he recorded all this stuff. He didn't recall all this crap that I did. And I wouldn't have, you know, kept going. So John is two younger brothers. I started a band with them and I wanted, that's when I decided Zenith was their own band. I had, had my own group and we started doing little Richard stuff and the Sonics and the pretty things and all this kind of stuff. And, um, 
I was in a newspaper. It says punk rock. This guy wrote this article, and then it, he wrote this stuff about how I was, you know, I slept in a casket and all this shit, and I hated everybody. And you know, the world was a bunch <laughs> of commun. Everybody looked like a communist concentration camp with their short fucking hair and all this stuff. And it was in a newspaper, <laughs> and uh, my father threw me out of the house temporarily and shredded the paper. And, and then these two younger guys, and they got. <laughs> their father took them out of the band <laughs> so that was the end of that and um we were recording an album it was supposed to be like the what the distorted levels was kind of turning into and um so anyways i ended up with no band and then um i went back with mike and carl and we did this distorted levels record and um i put it together and i had to print it printed up and all that kind of stuff and greg shaw was a key person that just helped me distribute it and uh gem records and um uh, I can't remember all the other places, Dutch East and all these other places in New York City. But anyways, that was like a big deal, you know, getting it out there. And then I sent it to all the magazines and I sent it to this guy, Robert Hall from Cream. And he goes, um, yeah, give me a copy of the, if you got an extra germs single, uh, I forgot which one, one of Bobby Penn was a singer. Um, Forming, I think was the record. Yeah, the first one, yeah. And so I sent him an extra copy. He goes, yeah, I'll put it out. I'll, I'll review it if you send Send me a copy. Of it. So I sent him a copy. He never reviewed it, but um, it got into magazines like Mike McDowell's Blitz and uh, and what was the other one? I can't remember. Um, Goldmine. They said it sounded like shit, but it was funny because <laughs> they didn't like it, and people were like, "What this? This is fucked up crap." You know, it was like, but it was like I don't know. I was trying to sound like the things I liked, but it just didn't quite sound like that. You know? Yeah, but it's great. It's kind of like proto-punk but during the punk era you know that hey mister you know i think it's it's a cool record and you know now people are paying big dollars for it right <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> oh. well i, I sort of do i sort of do <laughs> so you know <laughs> anyway from this you know the, the chesterfield kings kind of formed pretty soon after that right yeah and um you know, and what did you have in mind for the sound of the band originally, the Chesterfield Kings? What was the the concept, for lack of a better word? Um, I, I think it's trying to sound like the Stones and the Yardbirds and uh, the Shadows of Night and all that kind of stuff. And then right. I thought I had to get away from playing guitar because when I played guitar, I played really sloppy and noisy. And and then I didn't like the idea of being in a band where I played guitar and sang because it just reminded me of like, I don't know. The bands I'd seen that kind of blew me away when I was younger were guys that had some guy in the front of the band, like the Stooges or Alice Cooper or Jagger or whoever, or James Brown, really. And, um, you know, you're looking at this guy and just kind of being ridiculous and noisy. And and then you got a band that can kind of keep it together, you know? Whereas yeah. when I was at Distorted Levels, I'd play and sing and, and I'd affect both things, you know? I'd get too carried away or noisy or my timing would go off or whatever. So anyways, right. I, then I would just wanted to sound like, actually the Sonics were like the, the first thing I really wanted to sound like. And that was with the, the creatures from the Black Lagoon. I wanted that little Richard, you know, the Pacific Northwest kind of thing. That's what I was originally trying to do. And then it kind of drifted further, you know? Right. And then you arrived on the concept of 1966. So why 1966? I mean, I know, but. Explain <laughs> what was it about 1966 that became the whole entire concept of the Chesterfield Kings in the beginning? Um, well, yeah, like you said, you know, it's like it's kind of it was the focal point, really. It was like 65, everybody still had most of the guys are still wearing ties and shit, and, you know, and they had on like short hair. And you look at some of these bands that sound really outrageous, and you look at a picture and go, really, sound like that? You know, I can't believe it. You know, it looked like my father. 
and you know <laughs> and so then it's like well you look at the chocolate watch band it's like well these guys they got their shit together you know i mean they got the look and these great shoes and and that was like a band where i thought wow and and the thing i thought was kind of too bad about that was you didn't see their pictures on the records you know it's like i had those albums and i'm like man these guys sound cool you know and and then when i saw a picture of them, i go wow these guys this is the band you know and uh anyways that was the whole idea of that it was like well you know in order to get away from know, we're all kind of hippie kid guys you know me and rick and and the the original guys in the band it was before Ori and Andy were in the band. It was like 1978 and it was me and Rick was playing bass and uh, Doug Meach on drums and um, this guy, Bob Ames. And we were just like a bunch of hippie guys, you know, flannel shirts and shredded bell bottom jeans and all this shit. And just, you know, people laugh and go, oh, yeah, you look cool. It's like, well, what did you look like in 1978? You know, <laughs> you know, everybody looked like that. Everybody looked like a, a hippie or whatever. You know, every guy my age just looked like a slob, you know, and um, then I just thought, well, why don't we <laughs> clean this up a little bit and then try to look like, you know, the stones and the pretty things and, and the yardbirds and these guys that look, you know, like we said, we think they look cool. And then uh, it was a it was a process to find the right guys. And then guys kept quitting. And then 1980, you know, 79, this guy, Frank Mall was in the band. He was a guitarist and. The band kind of like he went back to Holland where he came from. It's he was a student here in um, nineteen eighty came along. And I was still working on. I think it was out of sight or was it future? I can't remember what it was called at the time. Shit, I don't know. Um, I think it was future. Though. Okay, thanks, Mike. It was yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> so, anyways, I had I had to finish up a future issue, and I had like a month and a half to do it. And then I was looking for a, a new guy. Well, actually, Rick was playing bass and he was actually a guitar player and he didn't want to play bass anymore. He goes, I want to play guitar. And if you don't find a place to practice, I'm not doing this crap anymore. And I go, okay, so I'll find a bass player and I'll find a place to practice. And then you'll join back up or whatever. And we didn't really break up. We were just kind of in this limbo for like whatever time, because um, as you read in the book, there's all these shitty places we used to rehearse and it was horrible and carrying your equipment around was a, a downer, you know? And so anyways, um, as 1980 came along, all of a sudden I met Andy at the store and he's this kid and he had this church his parents went to to practice that. And I go, oh, fucking great. Okay, I got a bass player and this. And then Rick wouldn't answer his phone. He's like, I kept calling him up and Rick, it's me. And then the sister goes, Rick's not here. Click. You know, what the fuck? You know, I, you know, I got the golden goose and the golden egg and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to talk to me. You know, it's like, okay, well, then finally he picked up the phone and he's like, I'm not doing this shit unless you got a place to practice, blah, blah, blah. And I go, and then it just sort of happened and, you know, and Andy was a kid and stuff and it just, it was easier to deal with a guy that's young than some fucking guy that wants to play Marshall Tucker songs, you know? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that's all that was around, you know, you'd ask somebody, hey, you play guitar? Yeah, I'm into the Doobie Brothers. Like, oh, fuck that, you know? And so <laughs> you have this kind of stuff going on. And then, so then anyways, that's why I had to deal with this other stuff. And then it was a process of, you know, let's get this look where, you know, you grow your hair out and this stuff and all that kind of junk. And then, and then it just kind of gradually, you know, Ori came in later that year and, um, everybody started growing their hair out and all that stuff and using hair straightener and all that fun shit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Getting the right boots and, and the right pants. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which wasn't easy back then, you know, finding all the cool stuff. Yeah. We just kind of lucked out with that shoe place that master John's up in Toronto, you know, and, we drive up there. Well, I used to go there when I was a teenager and when we were kind of like 
hippies and shit and just drive up there and they didn't have border patrol. They say, yeah, who cares? Unless if you got $5, they let you in, you know, <laughs> and back, <laughs> you know, you need ID. I mean, later you did. And, uh, but it was pretty loose. And so we found places up there that made shoes. Cause down here, nobody, there weren't many immigrants in this country or in this area that did that kind of stuff. And up there is all these great people from Europe there. And, tons of people from Greece and all these places where guys would make shoes, you know, and, and it was an art that is lost nowadays, you know? And, uh, anyways, yeah, definitely sky master John and his brother, Peter down the street, with this place called fantastic shoes. And, um, you just go in there and we started doing this whole thing. And then we had a system where we'd make, you know, whatever. And we'd get all these shoes made and, you know, you go to these junk shops and find like clothes and things you can't find anymore. And, but anyways, all those boutiques and all that hippie stuff's gone now up there. It's all commercial. Yeah, of course. Yeah, It's horrible. I mean, it's not horrible. I like it in Toronto, but it's like you're going there and it's like going to New York City. It's all clean and, and there's no hippie places and there's no music stores or record places like there used to be, you know? Right, right. So, yeah, you, you know, by what year was it you got the whole look together? Like by 81, 82, you kind of had this total 1966 look and sound and it was really authentic, you know? That was really not anyone else doing that kind of stuff at that point. I think it was like by early, like the end of 80, we're, I, was tr I was trying to get these guys to do this shit. And a lot of guys, I was getting resistance. It's like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not growing my hair out. No, blah, blah. I look like a queer and all this stuff. It's like, you know, come on, you know, fucking do this. And you just got to listen to me and do this. And you can't tell people you like anything other than 1966. I don't care how old you are. If you were two when it came out, you got to pretend that's what you like now. I don't give a shit, you know? And it was kind of like, the, it was like the monkeys or something, you know, and I was like Don Kirshner and I had to like say, well, you got to do this and that. And guys like Doug, oh, he was already, he was older than me. He was four years older. So he, he was totally together. And Rick was pretty much close to me too. In my age, he's a little bit younger, but uh, I don't know. It just sort of happened. And then when, when everybody saw the light, it just kind of clicked, you know? And then I, I know that Shelly from the Unclaimed was doing this stuff too, because I hooked up with him through Dave Gibson the late Dave Gibson at Moxie and um, we got to be good friends and we compare notes, you know, and I just remember being impressed by this kid that was a bass player in his band. And I go, Holy shit, this guy looks like, he looks like Brian Jones, you know? And um, it was in, I think it was in Mike McDowell's magazine blitz. And, uh, and then Shelly goes, yeah. Oh yeah. I go, where'd you find this kid? He's walking around looking like this. And he goes, no, I had to kind of invent him, you know? And I go, Hey, that's a good idea. And that's, it kind of put the spark in my head to like, okay, let's just take guys that don't want to do this. They don't look right. You just make them look right. If they're young enough to be changed, you know, if they're already older, they don't want to do that, you know? Yeah, right. But um, there's a little resistance, but at the same time, once the, you know, once you play out and people are like, hey, you guys are different or whatever, or they, I don't know, once people started to like us, then I think it changed things, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I had no idea how much effort it had taken to, <laughs> to bring everyone around to that look and sound. But, you know, when I first saw pictures and, and heard Chesterfield Kings, I was super impressed because it was exactly what I'd been going for when I was in the Crawdaddies, you know. And uh, all of us in the Crawdaddies. Oh, I love the Crawdaddies. To be totally authentic to that, uh, you know, 60s look and sound. And just because we thought everything in that, you know, late seventies and early eighties kind of was lame, you know? So let's go back to when it was cool, you know, let's go back to aftermath and uh, out of our heads, you know? I love the crawdaddies and the telltale hearts. I mean, you guys really had it together, you know, it's like, 
I, I look back at your stuff and your records. I'm like, fuck yeah, you guys had it down. And I, your records are still respectable to me. What I did was crap, you know, but what you did, it's really solid to, I mean, it's, it's timeless. <laughs> no, what you guys did was yeah. timeless. What I did isn't it's, it's dated, you know? And, um, well, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I, I kind of maybe feel, feel the opposite, no. <laughs> you know, like your stuff is <laughs> starting up better than ours. So, you know, I think it's just the perspective of being close to it. And you kind of look now I look at that stuff and I think, eh, we were kind of okay, I guess, but no, I think you know, that what Chesterfield Kings did it at a higher level. Uh, no, you know? what you did was it's timeless because there's one thing I have to say. It's like blues based stuff, music that's based on like Muddy Waters and, and Holland Wolf, like what you guys did, which is more to that degree and that intensity is more timeless than this. Like, like for example, the first Shadows of Night. I mean, like that album is just, you can play it now and it's still the best record in the world, you know, and, and it's, because they were on that level, you know, and they didn't like kind of get into all that stuff. Like the Chesterfield Kings, I think we just got too, I don't know, we know what the hell we were doing. It's like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, we, we were with this one band and then we kind of drifted. But what you guys did is it's really solid, you know, and, and it still stands yeah. up. What I did is sounds like, oh, this sounds like some old shitty band, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know, but thank thank you for that. But let's get back to you. <laughs> so you know, you, with the original sort of '66 concept, Chesterfield Kings, you did a few '45s, and uh, I guess the f the first album was completely pure to that. And it was all the first album was all cover versions, but it was songs that you know only really like record collectors knew at that point. You know. Um, I mean, when that came out, I didn't know, you know, I maybe knew 60% of those songs, you know, and the rumor was that one of the songs was an original. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> and nobody, and nobody could decide which one, you know? And so when it first came out, I thought fluctuation was the one, you know, I thought oh, that must be the song they wrote. Cause I'd never heard of that one. You know, that's not, you know, I never, <laughs> never heard of it, but it, that for me, that's still one of my favorite songs on that album. And, uh, yeah, I love maybe that. We'll, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, how did you find that 45? I mean, that's a, from Texas. Um, I was really obsessed with Texas stuff after the elevators. I was like, I, I love the 13. Well, everybody does now. Back then, it was hard finding anybody that knew who they were. And like in Rochester, it was like one guy had one of their records. And I tried to get him in the band and he was already in a band. But um, it just, I don't know. I, I was so obsessed with what they did in the moving sidewalks. I was really into these groups that I had heard them on WSAY back when I was a kid. And then it was hard to find the records, but I found them, you know, eventually in the, in the later sixties, early seventies period. And then I just kind of wanted every record from that area. Cause I liked those two bands. I like Johnny winter. And then, um, it just started building and I started collecting all these records that I could find. And, uh, I was friends with guys like David shut and, um, Doug Hanners, who I'm still friends with. And, uh, right. Um, yeah. God, I can't remember Dave, I, all these guys I used to know back then, back, um, some of them are dead and gone. Um, Peter Bianel is a great guy. And anyways, all these guys, I used to trade records with them and then I'd trade tapes with people. That was the way to hear things. And he'd find all these records. And I think I got that for like, I, don't, I can't remember. I, I don't remember where I got it, but I, I think I traded something to somebody and I got it for like $2 or something. And, um, and then I go, wow, this record. And when I played it, I go, oh, we have to do this song. You know, it's just, this is so good. I don't know. I just love the song. And the funny thing about that is we played at that, um, Greg Shaw um, had us play at that Battle of the Garages thing in New York City and we were so fucking out of it you know I mean we were like a bunch of dumb 
hillbillies from up here, you know? And, um, I think, yeah, Ori was in the band. It was, it was like, I can't remember what, it was the summer of 81, I think, or whatever. And so we went there and we, we just learned fluctuation and like the words, if you listen to the record, it keeps going, right? There's like five verses and it's like, uh, you know, all that stuff about beetle boots and long hair and fucking ugly girls or whatever. And, and so, (laughs) (laughs) and so it's like, you're listening to this, there's all these lyrics, you know, I'm like, so I'm on the stage and I was petrified. It's like, you know, playing in New York city after playing in Rochester four times or whatever. And so we're playing at the, with the Slicky Boys and um, I forgot who else, Wombats and I can't remember, somebody else. So anyways, we're doing this song and it's like me and Rick are the road guys. And we're taping that 1966 bed sheet up over and people are like, look at these guys, you know, they're wearing <laughs> sunglasses because I couldn't look at the crowd because I was petrified and I was so scared shitless, you know, and I was wearing a sweater of all things, you know, like a big striped sweater and it was soaked when I got done and I had like prickly heat all my neck from it. But anyways, <laughs> so we're up there and we're doing this this song. We're going pretty good. And it's, yeah, that was good. Yeah, sitting there standing. And then we did a couple other things, you know. And and then we did Fluctuation. It was like, yeah, I'm trying to be real cool and stuff. And then I forgot the words. Like, oh, shit. I cannot fucking remember the words. So then I pretended I dropped the microphone. And, Even long hair. <laughs> nobody knew because nobody knew the song anyways. <laughs> but anyways, that, that just, that's every time I hear that song, I always think of how scared I was when I was on that stage. And. And <laughs> yeah, that uncomfortable memory. It was horrible. Yeah. And like, you know, and later on, I didn't care. I just throw the mic on the floor and jump in the crowd if I couldn't remember something, you know. <laughs> but back then, it's like, oh, I got to stay on the stage. I don't want to do that because I'm too afraid to be on the stage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you forget the first line, then, then that's oh, yeah. it. it's all over. You know, right? You're doomed. <laughs> You're never going to get back in. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at some point, you must have decided, well, you know, we can't just keep covering obscure 1966 garage songs, so we got to start writing songs. And uh, the first thing that came out um, with, with an original was uh, She Told Me Lies, which, you know, I really think, still think stands up as one of the best songs from that time. I know you're, you're going to tell me how you don't feel the same, but, but uh, yeah, you know, tell me about how you know you decided to like, you know, let's write our own songs. How did you go about doing it? Um, it wasn't. We didn't want to. Me and Rick, I, well, none of us did. It was. It was a thing that I I dreaded it because I, I actually I the first song that the Chesterfield Kings original. I, I wrote this song. It was supposed to come out in 1979. And I wish I could find the tape because John recorded John Fritch and he goes, man, it sounded like the Velvet Underground. It sounded like, why don't you smile now? And it was called My World's Out of Line. And I never could find it again. So I don't remember what it sounds like or anything. But that was the first song that was written. It was an original. But I wasn't paranoid about writing originals at that time because it's still, the, you know, 79. I wasn't into that 66. Well, if you write a song in 1980, it's not from 1966. That was my warped ideal, you know. And (laughs) so it's just not, it's not a 60s song anymore. It's an 80s song. So I hate, I fucking hate the 80s. They suck. And so, (laughs) so I didn't want to write songs, you know, and then, and it was so much fun playing these, you know, Don't Burn It by the Barons and Stereo Shoestring and all these songs that I loved. And Rick thought the same thing. We're like, as soon as we started having to write songs, that's when we started, that was a downturn. And it was kind of like we were forced to do it because all these magazines were like, they thought we were morons, which we were, but you know, 
<laughs> you know, like Spin Magazine. They thought we were a bunch of shit, and they said, we won't review your records because you guys suck your, you know, all this stuff, you know. And I didn't care because I thought they were a bunch of shit anyways. Anyway, so all these other guys are starting to do their own songs, and it's like, well, if we don't do our own stuff, we're going to, you know, well, we were left in the dark anyways by everybody because we were too stupid to, you know, pick up the rope and run with it. But um, besides that, um, I think we did the the first song was actually, um, oh God, I can't remember, some other crappy song we did on the first album or second album. And so we did a song and, uh, you know, me and Ori did it. And, um, oh, let's just play the song, see if people know it. Nobody knew what it was. So we go, okay, that works. So let's write a song and... By the time we were going to do a single, that song was two years old. So we said, well, let's do a new one. And so then we did this shitty song, this She Told Me Lies thing. You know, it's like, I don't know. I was. It's funny because we used to practice at that church and uh, I was taking a piss in the, <laughs> you know, I was in the urinal taking a pee. And then I, I go, oh, I came up with a song. And it was that song, you know, and, <laughs> and it came into my head and uh, Ori came in there second, you know, and I go, hey, I got this idea. Let's go and mess around with this real quick. And it was just a rip off of, um, uh, Tommy Tucker, don't tell me no lies. That was on IGL records, and um, I crossed that with um, "I'm Coming Home" by the uh, the Rising Storm, which is where the riff came from, which was a song we did at that time. And so we just kind of <laughs> took those two songs and put it together, and then I changed the lyric, content, the melody, and then it became that stupid song. And that's how, that's how that came up together. Then we just showed it to the other guys. But then we recorded it weeks later, you know, and it was still fresh as a new song. So then we did, they had this stupid idea to do two versions of it. I don't know why. Oh, we'll do one with the get off my cloud. Oh, how fucking clever, you know. And then, oh, we'll do uh, I want to hold your hand and the other one. Yeah, I mean, brilliant, you know. But <laughs> I don't remember which one is which. Yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> I think on the single you do the "Get Off My Cloud" drum intro, right? And yeah. Then, uh, on the album, well, the single we should have just like, uh, left that alone. I don't know why we recorded that shitty song again because we thought we were so fucking great songwriters or some stupid crap. And instead of just taking <laughs> one of the three hundred and fifty songs, we bragged about how we knew them. Why didn't we do something else? You know, instead of that. But <laughs> yeah. I can't go back in time. <laughs> you did have some uh, success. I mean. Even during that era, I mean, I remember seeing you on MTV doing 99th Floor. Um, well, so yeah, you were you were kind of making some kind of impact, you know, uh, that was above what a lot of the you know aspiring new garage bands were doing. I think I don't know. You know, it's just like we did that, and then well, we got on MTV because my friend Pearl worked there. We didn't get on there. We didn't earn our way on there by being good or anything. It was like. My friend Pearl worked there and she said, hey, you know, they're doing this um, Battle of the Garages thing or something. I don't know, some shitty band thing with where crummy bands that send their crappy video in. And then then you call in for 50 cents and vote for your favorite band. You know, of course, we were told don't bother sending, you know, calling because you're going to come in fifth or something. You know, no matter what, you're going to come in here and some crappy 80s band is going to get in there and win it or whatever. But we were so dumb, we called in a hundred times anyways and didn't win anyhow. And <laughs> at least it got shown on <laughs> it was on tv anyway and uh, i think i spent a, i spent a couple of dollars calling in for you oh thanks Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but but i wasn't surprised when you didn't win you know some probably some cheesy metal bat one or no it's eddie and the tide i still remember it's like eddie and the tide and he must have spent like a million dollars on this shitty video where they got like a ice carving and all this crap and i go <laughs> who fucking cares about this stuff you know but you know that's how it was 
but um, <laughs> no, we didn't really get, we weren't really popular. We didn't really do anything, you know? And then we, every time we did something, we were too stupid to, you know, make it go to the next level or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. You didn't, yeah, you weren't career driven like some people are, you know? I mean, we had opportunities, but we always, we never, we always knew how to ruin it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we'd get to a certain point and then and then when there was a point where we could have gotten somewhere i i didn't really want to do it I, and i was scared to take the final step personally and i'm glad i didn't you know because i don't know i didn't want to be associated with that my whole life you know one two three stand here by freight train try to get out here Wherever I go, I know I can't win. I get drunk, sing the same old song, soak myself in gin. I head down down the road, nowhere to go. Gotta keep rolling on, got nowhere to go. Be sure to listen to part two of this episode next week. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Issue number 61 will be coming out at the end of November. That's 2022. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Please consider joining and help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Rob Brannigan, Chip Lyon, and Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support, and thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.